I'd like to preach today a passage of scripture, a verse taken out of the context of a marvelous section on Christian marriage in the home. It's found in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And we'll read one verse, and that's verse 25. I want to read that verse of Scripture, and although um, this will be a message generally to everyone, I hope, primarily to those men, fathers and husbands who are present. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I feel that I am eminently qualified to preach on marriage because I've been married 61.7% of my life. Got it counted. And because after having been a pastor for about 30 years, I've counseled literally scores, perhaps hundreds, of couples concerning marriage, some wanting in, some wanting out. Some have some negative things to say about it, and some have positive things. A young married woman came to her pastor to talk with him about their marital stress, marital problems. And after a long time of conference and counseling, when she started to leave, she said, the saddest thing of all is, I do not know one single couple who is happily married. Now I'm not prepared to say that this morning because I know that there are many of us who are happily married, but I know many people who are not. There are two kinds of preaching on marriage. Most preaching is of a preventive kind. It's like you run up a flag on the great sea of matrimony to warn of impending danger kind of warning flags to say that the storm is up, the winds are up, and you better watch out. Kind of like shooting up warning flares to say that if you do this in marriage or if you do not do this in marriage, there are, there are dangers ahead. That's one kind of preaching. There's a second kind of preaching on marriage that's much more difficult. It's the kind of preaching that says just before the good ship matrimony capsizes, let's see if we can salvage something. It recognizes that the ship is taking water and is about to sink, and it dives into the rapids to say, let's save what we can. Let's see if we can rescue this ship before it goes down. That's the kind of preaching I want to do today. And there are questions there, people who ask, is there any word for that kind of situation? I think there is a word for that. In the most uh, uh, unlikely text, there is a word. The text is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the unfaithful church, the imperfect church, Christ loved her. For hasn't the prophet said that the people of God are guilty of spiritual adultery? And hasn't the church been likened to one who has been unfaithful? Christ's love that unfaithful, imperfect church. And Paul said, I'm to love my wife just like that. Now I know that many of you have turned me off already 
Because you're thinking, I'm not even married, so what is he going to talk to me about? You're, you're thinking that, or I've already lived through one long marriage term, and, and there's nothing he can say that, that I don't already know and haven't already experienced. That's all right. But what I'm about to say this morning not just relate, does not just relate to married couples, but I think the principles I'm going to set forth relate to all kinds, every kind of human relationship, even if the relationship you have with the people down the street from you. Some of you turned me off because you were saying, I've got a good marriage, and so if you're talking about rescuing something out of a bad marriage, you're not talking to me, yeah? And you're the kind of guy that'll wake up one day and realize that your marriage really hadn't been so hot, that you've missed a lot. And some of you have already turned me off because you didn't plan on listening to me in the first place. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of preaching that's done where, where that happens. As a matter of fact, this, this sermon this morning has a, has a, a tragic um, story related to it. When I was pastoring out in West Texas, a young couple came to me and said, would you perform our wedding ceremony? I said, of course I would. She was a from a very strong Christian home that their parents, his, her, her father was a deacon in my church. He was a boy from another denomination, very religious young man who had embraced the Baptist denomination. They wanted to be married, me to, in my church, for me to marry him. This was their request. They said, we want you to preach a, a traditional marriage ceremony that we always hear. We want you to preach a sermon on marriage. We want you to preach not only to us, but to everybody present about what a Christian marriage ought to be. And so I prepared this sermon, used the, the outline that I'm going to use this morning and preached it. They must not have listened to me. Well, their marriage got rough from the beginning, I understand. They, it came on hard times. And two years ago this month, that young man with two small children to that marriage came home early from work one day to find his wife packing her bags to leave. And they got in a violent argument and he took a gun and shot her to death. And a year ago this month, he was sentenced to a, year, to, to a life term in the penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. And so I know that when I preach this morning, many of you don't intend to do anything about what I say in the first place, and that's all right also. But I want you to understand that you're being judged not just from what you did not hear, but you're being judged this morning on the basis of what you heard and didn't do anything about. And I want to unload the primary emphasis of this sermon on those of us who are husbands and fathers. How am I to love my wife? Well, the scripture says that I am to love my wife with a let's face the issue kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus had for the church was a let's face the issues kind of love. The issue of man's never ending predicament. The issue of man's temptation to sin and his sin. The issue of man's possible salvation or destruction. And a lesser desire to face the issues on Jesus' part would have been content with a sterile crib rather than a, instead of a smelly manger with a crown of majesty instead of a crown of thorns, with a cross-town preaching mission instead of a cross between two thieves, 
But Jesus was willing to face the issue. And this is what he said. This is what's wrong in, this, in your life. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And this is what you will have to do about it. Are you willing to face the issue this morning concerning the relationship of your life, the relationships as parent, as husband and wife, as neighbor? Are you willing to face the issue? What is your marriage really like? What is your home really like? What are you really like? I know young people, kids, feel like they've just got the worst kind of parents in the world. What are you doing about the problem and what are you doing about its solution? What are you doing to face the issues of these things? Are you willing to face the issue? I have yet to counsel where there are marital problems, but what I find, at least one of the partners who has said this, when, when, when issues are brought up, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. I didn't, I, I didn't think that was the way it really was. Christ was the kind, had a love for the church, the kind of love that just really confronted the issue as the issue really is. Now somebody made a survey not long ago. It's one of those surveys that you never are part of. You ever notice that? People take surveys and never ask me anything. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do all. I'm, I, you tell whoever's taking those surveys. I like to be surveyed. Never been asked. But if you'll trust the survey, these are the issues as they were defined. If wherever there is a marriage, these are the issues that are involved. One has to do with common, with tenderness and affection. My husband never shows me any affection never touches, never loves me except for what he wants from me. There's no affection, there's no love expressed in our marriage. The second issue, issue is the issue of social ability. Some have said, well, my husband is the most entertaining person outside our home there is. He's just so dynamic and so entertaining, but in our home, he's a bore. I mean, he is boring. Two women were talking. One said to the other, does your husband believe in life after death? The other said, my husband doesn't even believe in life after supper. I mean, is that the issue in your home? I mean, what are you doing to bring some excitement and some color and some life into your relationship? The third issue has to do with common courtesy and kindness. Some wag put it like this. He said, there'd be less strife in married life if the husband would express the self-same courtesy to his wife that he does an average friend or even a little less would be all right, I guess. I heard this apocryphal story. It has to be untrue. It has to be apocryphal about a man who came home one day to, say, to, to meet his wife and she said, you know, the maid quit. The housekeeper quit today. Said you talked to her rudely. me. The husband said, my wife never really understands me. Why did Peter say, husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge? What did he mean by that? He meant that your responsibility is to, is to do your homework and find and, and engage in a lifelong quest to understand your wife and her needs. the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you need one, somebody you don't trust. What are the issues really? Well, the issues are these. This is the issue. 
that there has been a tremendous amount of impersonalization that has crept into the pores of our being. And man has become a statistic, a number. Gone are the days in rural America when we worked together and we lived together and we ate together and, they, and, and we were together at, at, at breakfast and lunch and supper and now in the modern marriage the man leaves early and the wife is engaged outside the home and in most cases he leaves on Monday and he never comes back until Friday and he needs the success, the intimacy of a successful marriage more than he's ever needed it before and he has less time to work on. That's the issue as it really is. The kind of love that Christ had for the church in the second place was a love that talked back. It was a love that communicated. The kind of love that God has as a self-disclosing disclosing kind of love. Merlin Berg of Union Seminary said, you can, def- you can summarize the Bible in one word here, H-E-A-R. Call unto me and I will answer thee. And God from the very beginning has been on this eternal quest to make himself known to man, communicating himself to man. For he understands that there can be no divine human relationship of love apart from communication. And he's taught us that there can be no meaningful relationship, human relationship, apart from communication. Communicate or disintegrate. For communication is to love what blood is to the body. Now what is communication? Communication is the visible or vocal transmission of meanings. Now I need you to get that definition. It is the visible or vocal transmission of meanings. It's not just being heard, it is being understood. It's not just having somebody hear what I'm saying, it's having someone understand what I'm meaning. Now I know that it's too simplistic to say that communication is talking and listening, but for our purposes here this morning, that's what it is. Now watch this. How are you going to love somebody you don't know? And how are you going to know somebody if he doesn't talk to you and you don't listen to him? How how are you going to know me this morning apart from me talking to you? You can know something about me by the shake of my hand. You can know something about me by the way I dress, something about me by that. But you'll never know me if I don't talk to you. The little girl said we have the neatest garbage man. He empties out our garbage can. He's just as nice as he can be for he spends some time talking to me. My mother doesn't like his smell, but then mother doesn't know him well. Now that little girl, she didn't know it, but she established two profound truths in communication. One is that the way to get beyond that which is offensive and repulsive is to get to know somebody. And when you get to know somebody, it it enables you to get over the hump of those things that are repulsive and obnoxious and offensive. When you really get to know somebody, it's easier to love them. And the second profound truth was, how are you going to get to know somebody if that person doesn't spend some time talking to you? 
It's a tragedy that there are hundreds and hundreds of couples who live at the same address, who operate out of the same house, who raise their families and spend decades together and never know one another. Rodney Dangerfield's always complaining about getting no respect. See, he got no respect at home. And he said jokingly, my wife and I sleep in separate rooms, we eat at different times, and we take separate vacations. We're doing everything we can to keep this marriage together. Well, he was, that's not what happens to keep a marriage together. The way you keep a marriage together is to pay the price of communication, the transmission of meanings to get to know one another, to talk and to listen. I hear women say, I hear husbands say, I've never heard. I hear children say that. Oh, I wish I could tell you how many times I've sat with young people and have had them tell me, I can't talk to my parents. They won't listen. When we start talking, it just boils up into some angry confrontation. Nobody listens to me. Nobody hears me. Nobody hears what I feel, what I'm saying, my transmission of meanings. There are two kinds of listening. There is a casual listening where the husband hears his wife's voice and hears the tone of her voice, hears what she says. And you can do that casual listening while, you eat it, while you're eating your lunch or while you're watching your television. And then there's a concentrated kind of listening. It's where the husband gives body and soul to what his wife needs and says. Christ loved the church with a, with a love that talks back. Christ loved the church with a love that took a stand. The first person historically who ever said, here I stand and can do no other, was not Martin Luther. The first person historically was Jesus Christ himself. He polarized thinking about himself. He not only faced the issue, he forced the issue. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he divided men so that one, a person could not remain neutral. They had to take a stand. They had to be somewhere. They had to say, here I am, and I'll not be moved from that. Sure is hard to get couples to do that, isn't it? Most of us want to wait, you know, and let it drift along. Most of us want to say, well, we'll try it this way or that. Most of us say, well, you do this, and, I'll, and, then, and we'll see how it works out. Very few people, very few of you and me, will stand to say, this is where I am and I'll not be moved. I'll be in this marriage until its end. You leave, but I'll be here when you come back for I'm committed to this marriage. I believe that that commitment involves two things. I believe it involves a personal commitment to God. Now, I've often been asked, do you believe that couples who are married, who are not Christians, can have a happy marriage? And I've always answered no, because I thought that was the right answer. And yet down deep inside, I knew that I know couples who would not claim the signature of Christ who are happily married. And I know Christians who are not happily married. And even though I have said, yes, no, I don't believe that you can be happily married if you're not a Christian, I know that I know couples who are happily and are married are not Christians. So what, is it, what, am I, what am I talking about? I have I've worked through this to this conviction, not an opinion, but a conviction, that the difference is this, 
that when a person has a personal faith in God, has made a personal commitment to God, this is the difference. What he wants for his marriage is what God wants for his marriage. That's the difference. The biblical concept of marriage becomes the goal of his life, becomes the goal of his striving. The biblical concept of marriage becomes the obsession of his religion, becomes the obsession of his faith, and he'll be content with nothing less. That's the difference. And a person who has had a personal commitment to God has the resources of Christ on which he can draw and lean when the difficult times come. That's the difference. He makes a personal commitment to God. And secondly, he makes a personal commitment to marriage. A personal commitment to marriage. Now I want to say something because I believe it's true with all the fiber, every fiber of my being, I believe it's true. That if you're married this morning, if you're married, you have no right to give yourself physically or emotionally to any other person than your wife or husband. Now you can take that and you can do what you want to with that. I know a lot of married couples, oh, I got this guy I work with, he's my very best friend and we can just talk, etc. Listen to me carefully. When you make a commitment to marriage, you are saying, I will not give myself emotionally or physically to any other person. I make a commitment to marriage. I make a commitment of time to marriage. Now when you say I love you, that might be filtered through that person's understanding of how much time you spend with them. Husband, in our, when you say I love you, their understanding of your love might, your love might be commensurate with the time you spend with your wife or in pursuit of her nature and needs. So that when you say I love you, what they're saying is, well then why do you not spend that time you have at your discretion with me. I make a commitment to marriage which involves treating my wife like no other person and spending that time with her. And I must confess that I fall down on the ladder. Not the, not the former, but the ladder. There are two other matters that have to do with this love. It's a love that allows for diversity. Now, Jesus loved the church, but he wasn't the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say, that we're not, we're, I didn't say we're not the body of Christ, or we are. I'm saying that he is not the church. Because if the church disappears, he still is. He transcends the church. That's why he's called the head of the church. He is above it and transcends it. So that if the church is no more, and there's a lot of talk about, will we ever have churchless Christianity? We may but we'll never have Christless Christianity. For he transcends the church and there are ways in which he is dependent upon the church and there are ways in which he is not. Now it is a folly this morning to believe that when two people marry they dissolve like two Alka-Seltzers in a glass of water. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely a weird concept. We do not cease to be when we marry. Now it is true that we do not live for ourselves any longer, but we still ourselves. Now watch this. 
if there is diversity, and God must love diversity because he made us so different. You guys are peculiar, you know, and I'm the only one that's normal. That's the way most of us think. He allows for diversity. We're so different. He must really like diversity. So if he has allowed for diversity, then my responsibility as a husband must not just be to recognize and permit my wife's diversity or difference. I, as a husband, must promote that difference, help her to discover it and fulfill it. That was hard for me to do for a long time. For example, I'll give you an example of it. I grew up, my father taught that, you know, his idea was that the, that the man pays all the bills and takes care of all the money. And so, you know, that's what I, and, and I realized not too long after marriage that, that I, I wasn't good at that. But my father said, if you're a real man, you take care of the pocketbook. So I hung in there. And the reason I know that I wasn't good at it, so people started sending me second notices and, you know, bank book balance never was, never was able to balance a bank book, et cetera. And I got to thinking about that, and somebody helped me. I don't know, it was a tape or a sermon I heard, that, 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 that if, if your wife has the gift of administration, then she should be the one who does that. And I came to understand, I came to recognize that, that her needs exist for me to fulfill them. Her needs exist for me to fulfill them. And in fulfilling her needs, I not only fulfill her, I fulfill myself. And her diversity, her difference is there because I have a weakness and God has placed her there because he knew I had that weakness. And so I began to help her discover that was where she was good and that's where she ought to operate and start working out good, working out better. Now that's where subjection in marriage comes. Now watch. My most frequently asked question is this. What does the Bible teach about subjection? Well, I don't know. And that helps a lot. I know the word is hupertasso. It, mean, it means submit. I think it means this. Are you listening? Subjection is the voluntary relinquishment of our control. The voluntary relinquishment of our control. And where you find it in the Bible, it, there are six hupotasso passages in the Bible, and they not only refer to the wife's subjection to marital authority, but to the husband as well has nothing to do with equality. Dorothy Sayers answered that question 50 years ago. Somebody, she said, to, to, to try to deal with the equality of the sexes is like answering who, which is better, an elephant or a racehorse? She said, when, when you ask, is the woman better than the man? It's like asking, is the, is the elephant better than the racehorse? And the answer is, at what? She said, I've never seen a racehorse carrying logs, and I've never seen an elephant win the Kentucky Derby. I mean, at what? Now, now look, if my wife has a, 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 a gift if she is diverse and God has put us together, and I think he has, he put her here because he knew my weakness. And so I promote that strength in order that she might minister to my weakness. And I voluntarily relinquish my right to control. And I think that has to happen in every relationship somewhere. We have to come to the place that we relinquish our right to control. And Art Westerfeld of Duke University, watch, would you listen to this? 
was called in to counsel some teachers of a, of a government school on a reservation of Native Americans in, Western, in the western part of the United States. They cheated all the time. These kids cheated. And so they, they, when, when the teachers confronted the kids with their cheating, this is what they said. They said, well, in the tribe, we're told that if somebody has a, has a need, he asks the tribe for it. If he has a question, he asks the tribe. If somebody has the, something in, in the tribe that somebody else needs, he gives it to them. And they realized they were, they were a part of a different culture. What was cheating to us was cooperation to them. Now, which is the better? The school that's, that teaches our kids to be competitive and to hold on to what you got and don't let anybody get it? Or the school that teaches our kids that we're in this thing together to help one another so that the weak submits to the expertise of the strong and the strong submits to the need of the weak? That's what subjection is. It is the weak submitting to the need of the strong or, 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 the, or the expertise of the strong and the strong submitting to the need of the weak. That's what happens in a beautiful marriage. And those points in time come often where that happens. One last thought. It's a kind of love that involves sacrifice. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. He gave up his robe for rags. He gave up his crown for crime and crosses. He gave up his glory for shame. He gave up the retinue of heavenly angels for the mob of cursing men. He gave up his back for the stripe. He gave up his hands for the nail. He gave up his side for the sword. He gave up his life. It involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. Now when Paul said for the wife to be subject to her husband, no eyebrows were raised. That's what they were doing anyway. I mean, that was a part of their culture. There was no problem with that. When he said that, the husband didn't have to punch his wife. They were already doing that. You know what raised eyebrows? It's when he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Something, something explosive happened. Now that wasn't the first, that wasn't new. That wasn't something new. It had just slipped through the cracks in the Old Testament. For don't you remember that Jacob gave up seven extra years for his bride? And don't you remember that Isaac had such a love for his family that he got out on his knees and begged for food during the famine and he gave his back to be spent digging a well for her so she could have water like she had back there in the land where she watered her camels. So when he said that you're to love with a sacrificial kind of love, he was just saying we need to get back to the beginning, to the very place where it all started. 
where men are willing to sacrifice and women were willing to sacrifice and kids, instead of demanding their own rights, are willing to sacrifice. And the wife said, I'll sacrifice my life to bring children into this world. And the husband said, I'll sacrifice my time to love them, play with them, and teach them. And the wife said, I'll sacrifice my lust and passion on the altar of patience and love my husband. And the husband said, I'll sacrifice my unfaithfulness on the altar of patience and love my wife. And what they said together was, we're willing to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. Now I hope you don't turn me off when I ask you to do this. I ask you to face the issue this morning and take a stand. I'm going to ask you today to sacrifice what stands between you and the relationship you ought to have. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the joy of fatherhood, for the privilege of being the husband of one wife for a lifetime. I thank you for the privilege of children and the joy they bring. And I thank you for the challenge that being a parent means, being a husband. I thank you that we have one who told us how and empowers us to do it. Even our Lord Jesus, whose name I pray. There are three invitations this morning. One invitation has to do with your personal commitment to Jesus Christ for salvation. I want you to come this morning. I'd like for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. I don't, I, it's not that important whether you're Baptist or Methodist or whatever. The important thing is, have you ever given your heart to Jesus Christ? I listened to Billy Graham last night on at Washington, D.C. Crusade, he told about one of the leading ministers in the Washington, D.C. area. Called him and said, before you leave town, I need to talk to you. I'm not sure that I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That's what I ask you to do this morning. The second invitation has to do with church membership. We want you to come if God leads you to, to do it, to put your life here, this family. Make a commitment to the church and its ministry and life. There might be someone this morning, I know it seems like, well, I'm making a big confession if I go forward as a husband or wife, but maybe you'd like to come to say, I, I'm not the kind of son or daughter. I'm not the kind of husband or wife, parent that I ought to be. I don't, I don't, I don't do what I ought to do, be what I ought to be. You just want to come to rededicate yourself or maybe to make promise concerning Christian altar, family, worship, prayer in your home, whatever. That's pretty tough. I know that. It sure was tough when Jesus took the cross on his back and treads right down Main Street. It'll be the joy of your life to do what God wants you to do, and it'll make us happy. Would you do it while we stand to sing?